Welcome back to Human Reaction, your weekly source for independent commentary on news, culture, and politics, where it is always our mission to arm you with the tools you need to cut through media misdirection and resist the mononarrative. Please like and subscribe to our channel wherever you are. We do cover a variety of topics, so use the chapter marks below to find the subjects that you're most interested in. Today, we're honored to have Dr. Vanskin joining us on the show. He's a PhD of economics and an accomplished economist who champions free market solutions to let people prosper. He's the former chief economist at the Pelican Institute for Public Policy and previously served as the chief economist for the White House Office of Management and Budget. He's currently a senior fellow at Americans for Tax Reform, a senior fellow at Young Americans for Liberty, and chief economist for the Texas Public Policy Foundation. Vance is the founder and president of Gin Economic Consulting and hosts his own podcast, Let People Prosper, which you can find on Spotify, iTunes, and YouTube. Vance, thanks so much for joining us today. Your, uh, your accolades are way larger than ours, so we, we're very honored to have you. Well, it's my pleasure, and I'm looking forward to the discussion today. Awesome. Well, David has queued up some uh, some interesting uh, questions. Why don't you take it from here, David? Where do we want to start? Well, I start with the bio, man. Like, uh, yep. obviously, that's you know procedure and everything. But what was it like to work at the White House and kind of your your career and your story? Like, how did you wind up doing all this stuff? Yeah, it, it's really wild. Like, I'm I feel blessed to be where I'm at today. It's been a wild journey from um, growing up in South Houston, Texas, to my parents getting divorced when I was young, single mom, kind of low income, poverty, really, you know, and uh, I went, I had the opportunity to go to private school from kindergarten to second grade, public school from third grade to sixth grade, or in homeschool, seventh grade through 12th grade. I uh, started playing drums when I was 16, and we were talking beforehand about how we're all drummers, and that's when I got my start in drumming. I was 16, started playing with a hard rock band. Uh, I was living the rock star life. I'll just leave it like that, but I was living the rock star life, man. And, um, uh, and, and I got in a serious car accident, May 25th, 2002, when I was 20. You know, we were young, stupid, going 120 miles an hour, racing another car, ran into the back of a Suburban. We were in Acura RSX and uh, we rolled. I got life light at Herman Hospital in Houston, went home that night by the grace of God. And I had about like a month to think about like, what, what am I going to do in my life? This rock star life isn't really heading in, the, in a good direction. Um, and I, I really felt compelled to let people prosper. And that's why I have like the Let People Prosper podcast show. And But it also got me into studying economics, which I had just really got started and into. And I went from being a first generation college student to getting a PhD in economics. That doesn't happen very often, if you didn't know. But I mean, so it was a lot of work <laughs> and everything else. And I got I started at the Texas Public Policy Foundation. Uh, actually, I worked at, at at some universities for a while. Texas Tech University is where I got my PhD. Taught economics there for a while. Taught at Sam Houston State University for a little while in Texas. And then I went over the Texas Public Policy Foundation because I really wanted to do policy where people actually read my work instead of writing in academic journals where nobody really reads this stuff. And um, <laughs> and and that got me on this path to where I am today to where, you know, I worked in the White House in the Trump administration from June 2019 to May of 2020 as the chief economist. It's The, the technical title is Associate Director for Economic Policy, but it's the chief economist of the Office of Management and Budget. So I was right there in the Eisenhower Executive Office building, right next to the White House, could go into, you know, the West Wing anytime I wanted, the Navy mess, uh, found myself in the Situation Room as a 
you know, a person who was in homeschool, a drummer. And, and then, um, and, you know, and back in the day, I used to dye my hair black and have like 10 gauge earrings in both ears and stuff, you know, and, and for going to all that to like sitting in the situation room, making these big decisions was just remarkable. Um, and then I went back to TPPF in May of 2020 after all the shutdowns and stuff happened. I was like, look, this is stuff is heading in the wrong direction. Let me get back home to, to Texas with my kids and family and everything. Um, and then last year I started my own thing again, economic consulting. It was a leap of faith where I just, I just quit where I was and said, you know what, I'm going to try something else and have been working with a lot of state think tanks across the country, including the Frontier Institute in Montana. And, um, and, and, and it's been great. Like I, I enjoy working on budgets, um, uh, tax reform, uh, occupational licensing reform, deregulation, just a lot of ways about like getting government out of the way. I'm a classical liberal, uh, more libertarian overall. So I'm trying to find out how do people, how do we get people to do what they want to do? I know that I've failed many times. Y'all probably haven't, but I have a lot. And I learned from that. And too often, I think we get caught up in public policy and socialism and everything else thinking like, okay, here's the utopia. But too often, if we don't fail, we're not going to learn and we're not going to learn how to improve things over time. And, um, and, and now I'm, you know, I got three kids and living near Austin, Texas and, uh, kind of living my dream. So, so there's, it's, it's a long story, I guess, but I've tried to shorten it as much as possible. And oh, I'm glad great. to be here no. with, with you talking yeah. today. <laughs> Oh, we appreciate it, man. That was really great. I mean, why economics? And then yeah. I did find from your background to that, well, where did the, I find a lot of people who get into economics have a moment or a story about how they got to that place where like, wow, this is this idea that things can order themselves on their own, that prosperity evolves from the bottom up is really profound. And there was like a, for me, there was a trigger point, but was there one for you? Yeah, I think the big part for me was um, kind of to your point about it comes up from the bottom, not from the top down approach that really got me interested. I remember when I took my first economics course in junior college, um, it was right when September 11th happened. It was in 2001. And I remember my economic professor was talking about how, you know, wars help grow the economy and everything. And I was like, man, that doesn't make sense. That just doesn't make sense to me because you're destroying things in the process. How can you be creating something and just because of government spending? And that kind of got me along that path a little bit more. And, and then when I got to Texas Tech, where I was studying intermediate macroeconomics, my mentor ended up being my mentor over time, Dr. Ronald Gilbert. Um, he gave me, I used to go talk to him after every class and we would talk a lot about economics and he handed me the book Capitalism and Freedom by Milton Friedman. And it like changed my life. I was like, you know, this stuff makes so much sense. And it makes sense that, you know, you should have control of your own destiny, not government. Um, and that there are trade-offs within the system. And so that really helped to get me on my direction of studying economics. And, and the way that I look at economics is that it is about human behavior. It's the study of human action and interaction within institutions to satisfy our desires given scarce resources. That's the way that I like to define it because it is about the human person. It's not about some economy or some stock market or something else. It's the study of how all those things work together. And so ultimately it's about individuals coming together, trusting one another with all these exchanges. And I think there's something beautiful to that, that, that really explains so much about how the world works. And I wish more people understood economics and I think we'd be in a much better place. I love that because so much of economics is seen as like giant numbers and dial turning, right? We're going to dive into the jobs report here in a minute, but it's yeah. important like to frame it up as the jobs report is a signal at the other end of a whole lot of human actions that all have like real consequences for real human beings. 
is that kind of where you're going with it? Is that, is am I, am I thinking of it right? Yes. Yes, exactly. I, I and, um, you know, part of that has been from different types of economics or even economists um, who have made a big impact on public policy, on the economy, on the global situation. And, uh, and mainly, you know, Karl Marx is considered a classical economist, but from a perspective of you can have class struggles and you can have the government come in and redistribute things and how all that could work. Uh, it doesn't work, but that's what he argued. But then you had John Maynard Keynes, you know, during the 1930s when you had the Great Depression going on. In his view, he was saving capitalism through all this government, like you said, turning those wheels, the machine of the economy, and, and trying to help out things. But in the process, I think, made us weaker. It extended the Great, Great Depression. It made things worse over time, and it led to a lot of the dependency that we have today on government instead of on civil society. In fact, I think it crowded out. I don't think I know it crowded out the productive private sector because of all the government spending. If you include state, local and federal spending, you're talking about 40 to 45 percent of the overall economy, meaning that that's where taxes are having to take out. Think about how much more robust our economy would be, how much more uh, jobs would be out available out there in the economy, higher wages and everything else. Had we not been set on this path over time? And, and I think it was it was it was good for those like Ludwig von Mises, Milton Friedman, Fred Frederick Hayek, Thomas Sowell today. I mean, the man's 90 years old and still writing books. It's, it's amazing. But these are the folks that I think we need to be looking up to more to say, you know what? This is a better path forward. No matter if it's in America or across the globe, capitalism works. Socialism doesn't. And, and too many people, I just don't think, understand ec capitalism. Um, they don't understand economics either, but they also don't understand capitalism. And so when you think about the jobs report, the GDP reports, a lot of stuff gets thrown out the top. I know we're going through some of the details, but the new report today, even when we're, you know, it, it talks about that there's a lot of jobs that are being created. The headlines are going to be, oh, it's a robust labor market. And as I'll explain in a little bit, it's actually a pretty weak labor market and the data support that. So we've got to look below the surface. We can't just look at these top line numbers. Hmm. Yeah, and I just want to just for the audience, if you we've mentioned two different books that you got to check out, we got Capitalism Freedom by Milton Friedman. We'll link that in. Go to LibertyPortal.com, get yourself a book there, and then uh, and then uh, also uh, Thomas Sowell's new book, Social Justice Fallacies. It's in my Audible listen queue. You guys got to get to it too. It's going to be really great because if anyone I, can I'm talk about this right in now. an interesting way, is it good? You like yeah. it? Yeah. Yeah, it's good. Oh, man, he's, he's so good. And he's been good forever. Like, you can find him in, like, 1971, just smashing people on, hey, I, on, on television. I, just I'd so love great. to know your favorite quote, but my, my favorite quote from Seoul is, um, in, in public policy, there's only trade-offs, no solutions. That's the one that always gets to me. I like Classic. that. Yeah, I like yeah. that. Oh, man. Oh, yeah. This episode is brought to you by our friends at the Frontier Institute, a free market think tank that believes in solving problems with more freedom and less government. Their mission is to elevate powerful stories and sound policy solutions to break down government barriers so that all Montanans can thrive. To learn more about them, visit FrontierInstitute.org. Let's get on with the show. So uh, jobs report. Let's dig into it. So every so, so people don't know the government puts out a bunch of numbers on a monthly, quarterly, yearly basis, right? Monthly. Uh, on, on how the economy is doing in these certain measures. And then yeah. they go back and they review them. So we're going to dive into those. What's the takeaway? Like, let's catch up. Someone's never heard of a job report before in their life. Tell us about it. What's the takeaways from this month? 
Yeah. So the jobs reports put out by the Bureau of Labor Statistics, which is underneath the Department of Labor at the, you know, the federal level. And they do different surveys. They do a payroll survey that goes out and asks questions of establishments. How many jobs have you added? How many have you let go? How much do you pay your workers? Kind of an average, things of that nature. And then there's also the household survey, which they ask a number of households us families uh, across the country. I've never got a call, but they, they ask a lot of people uh, about what their, what their situation's like. Have they got a job? Are they over 16? You know, just normal things about the labor market. Um, and then they, they put that, those, that information into their statistical analysis, and then they project what that means for the rest of the country. Because they're not going to go out and you know, interview every business or interview every household. So it, it is an estimate approximation of what's going on in the labor market. And you know, I think there's some good information for us to look at and, and see how it does, especially over time. Um, but at this, and so with the, the, what they'll report, the mainline numbers is that you will usually get will be the number of net non-farm jobs created. So that's really out of the payroll survey. So net non-farm, the reason why they use non-farm is because farming jobs, they consider to be very volatile. And, um, you know, it's usually family businesses and stuff. And so they're trying to look at more in the private sector, what's happening in the economy. They also do include government jobs. Um, but that, that data out today, which they always report from the previous month, so we're on October 6th, it's the first Friday of every month, is always, and you can remember, the US jobs report's gonna be. Um, I remember when I was teaching economics, I'd always be, get, get the class excited. It, you know, it's jobs report Friday, and then kind of go through all the details <laughs> and stuff, kind of like we're doing today. It's jobs report Friday. Yeah. Um, and and so, so this these numbers are for September, and they'll also do some revisions over the last couple of months, and um, the, the headline numbers that we'll see is that the US economy um, added 336 6,000 jobs. Employers added 336,000 net non-farm jobs, meaning that there were more jobs gross, like the gross number of jobs was greater added, and there were a lot that were let go as well. But on net, when you look at those, there were 336,000 more jobs than the previous month. But what was also interesting about this report is they revised the previous two months up by 119,000 jobs. So that that was an increase. So look, we're, we're looking at you know, close more, more than 450,000 new jobs that were added. Um, and, and it makes it look really good. Um, I want to get to some of those details in a little bit, but the other big number that comes out is out of the household survey, which is the unemployment rate, uh, remained unchanged at 3.8%, which also historically is, is very low that, that, you know, that's a the near record low. It looks good on that side as well. And the other big thing that I think we should look at there's some other things that we can dig into, but it is um, average weekly earnings, like how much people are actually earning. And that went up 4.2% year over year. Um, if you adjust it for inflation, you know, inflation's running around 4% too. So there's really not much gain. Of the last three months, wages are been essentially, or earnings have been essentially flat. And if you look at the last two and a half years, basically since Biden got into office, wages are down for an average household is down about $7,000. When you look at different factors just since then, meaning that you can't buy as much of a basket. You're, you're $7,000 poorer than you were when Biden, Biden took office. It's another reason why Bidenomics is a failure. And we can talk about that too. But when you look at those numbers, some of those things are going to be things that people are going to say, you know what, these are good signs of what's going on in the economy. But I would argue that they, it's still a weak economy because if you added in the labor force that's dropped out since February of 2020, right before the shutdowns and everything happened with COVID, right? We're about 1.4 million fewer people that are in the labor force. You add them back in the labor force and that unemployment rate would shoot up to about a little over 5%. 
So that's not good. Um, the household survey also showed that employment increased by 84,000, not 336,000. So that's also pretty weak. So, and, and there are a number of other factors that are out there too that I think that indicate that this is a weaker labor market and the, it goes along with a lot of the weaknesses we've seen in the overall economy. And, and it goes along with what we're seeing in the polling. I mean, polling is just, it's cratering how the consumer sentiment continues to fall um, as people just don't feel like this is a good economy. And you know, uh, the credit card debt has now exceeded a trillion dollars. So the spending is still up, but people are just putting it all on their credit card and it continuing to go on even as interest rates continue to soar. So a long story short here is that I think that you're going to hear a lot of strong, this is a strong report, but there's a lot of weaknesses that are in the labor market. That's really interesting, Vance. I'm curious. I want to dig in on a couple of those things. So you noted that um, the reports that come out, they get revised after the fact and sometimes several months after the fact. Why is that done? And, and what does that indicate about the initial numbers that were given to us? Are they, are they just inaccurate or are they trying to hide something? What's going on there? I mean, to, to take best case scenario, they're not hiding anything. It's just a matter of them getting more data as the months go on. Um, and that there are what's called seasonal adjustments. So throughout the, the, the year, there are a number of jobs that are usually added for seasonal purposes, um, like during the summer, during Christmas, things of that nature. And so if you tease some of those out, you smooth out the data, you can say how many, how many jobs are actually created compared to what they have been historically, okay? Um, and those seasonal adjustments, I think, are making a lot of problems in our labor market right now because it includes the last three years. I mean, it includes a lot of volatility during the, the, the shutdowns and then how they came up after that. Um, and so there's a lot of garbage is what I'd say. There's a lot of garbage in these data and garbage in, garbage out is I think what we're seeing within these data right now. Um, and because we're seeing massive revisions of previous months every year. Now, that's historically always been the case, that there will always be revisions over the last couple of months, but not to the magnitude that they have been over the last... Uh, at least 12 months, we've seen more than 100,000 plus or minus in, in, in either way. This, this, this shows a lot of instability that's going on with these data. And so I think we should take a lot of this data with a grain of salt because my guess is this 336,000 jobs is going to be revised lower once we get more data that come in. And, and this won't really be smoothed out to have better labor market data month to month until I think at least another year, because when we get further away, especially from 2020, because we had the 22 million jobs that were lost um, during those just two months of, you know, what was it, um, March and April of 2020. And then you started to see the increase over time. But that throws off a lot of these numbers that are out there. And, and so I think that that's part of it. There, there is the other side, though, uh, where you, you say, you know what, maybe there is uh, a reason for them to report these high number of jobs being created monthly and then go back and revise them later when nobody's going to care because they can get the good top line numbers, good, good reports and get all the good media um, that people will talk about, which we have a lot of progressive media, not, not, not y'all, but we have a lot of progressive media that's going on out there and, and they're willing to tell more of that story than they will about the revisions, the loss of un, you know, the people that are, um, have dropped out of the labor force and everything else. Um, that should be more of what the story should be. The the jobs that we've created in the last month, all that were is that all full time jobs or is that part time jobs and full time? 
Yeah, it's a combination of the two. Um, I don't have the exact number, but what we've seen of the last couple, few months now has been that the majority of jobs created on net, right, are, are um, part-time jobs. These are not full-time jobs, which is another indication of some of the weaknesses that are in the overall labor market. And, and you know, there's a lot of talk about labor shortage um, and where it's difficult. You have a lot of job openings by businesses, and that's the demand compared to unemployed, so the supply. And so there's been this gap. And that is what we call the labor shortage that's out there. Um, and, and you wonder, I, I, you know, I've got some a little bit concerned about those job openings. Like how many of these are really job openings? How many of them had, had, had taken on debt whenever interest rates were so low? Because now small businesses, bankruptcies are up 61%, 61% just over the last year. Um, it's it, a lot of small businesses are starting to fail and they were, the, and that means job openings are now falling as well. So they had this anticipation of hiring more workers, but I don't know that they really needed them based on the demand that they had at the time. And so now that gap is shrinking and we're seeing a little bit more of a, I don't know, it, it looks like a tighter labor market, but we've got a lot of uncertainty that's still out there. Um, and so, you know, it's another thing interesting about the labor market is people are jumping jobs a lot more. Well, why? Well, why is that the case? Um, there's a number of reasons for that. One reason is I think that more people are willing, are wanting to look more for remote work. Uh, one thing that taught them about COVID was that they'd rather work from home more than being in the office, you know, 40 hours a week. So they're looking for those jobs that will give them more flexibility, more fringe benefits and stuff like that. But it also, because of the inflationary pressure that the overspending by Congress, the overprinting of money by the Federal Reserve uh, and all those things, um, they have to jump jobs in order to keep up. I mean, this is a tough situation for so many households. I mean, I'm fortunate, you know, I'm blessed in the sense of my wife, she makes good money, she has her own business and we've got three kids and so we can afford it. But a lot of the folks who are working paycheck to paycheck and everything, it's very difficult to make, um, to, to, to make the ends meet at this point. And, and I don't see it really getting that much better for a while. Yes, inflationary pressures are down from 9% a year ago down to about 4%. But that 4% still still high and it's not catching you up from your wage growth that wasn't growing before that. So all this is influencing a lot of what's happening in the in the labor market. And that, that really explains why people feel like when they hear that inflation's down on like a title to some MSNBC yeah. article or something like that, that their intuitive feeling about their life and what they're seeing in the press is so there's a huge gap there. Yep. There's like that that human element that's saying, I can't seem to buy groceries without feeling like I'm going bankrupt. Yet you're telling me the economy's on the upswing and everything's okay. And this uh, strange act by the Biden administration to lean into Biden economics and say, no, everything's great. Biden economics are working. Yes. Yeah. It, it's interesting too, because um, some Democrats are even telling the Biden, the White House to stop talking about Bidenomics because <laughs> they're mm. hearing from their constituents a lot of the problems that we've just laid out in the labor market and what's going on in the economy. And they're like, you know, let's push pause on this a little bit because this isn't going that well. You can only sell it so much. It's interesting too that they've started using Bidenomics so early in the administration. I mean, usually you don't hear about Trump Trumponomics, Trumponomics, or Reaganomics, or uh, Bushomics until after, at least after the first term. Yeah, like yeah. we're still in all of this, but I think they did it because they wanted to sell to the American people the highlights. But unfortunately, it doesn't it doesn't actually match what's happening in people's households. 
And, and right. that is starting to show a wider gap between what they're pushing versus reality. And I think we're going to continue to see that, you know, over time. Unfortunately, like I try to be optimistic. I, you know, I'm, I, um, I'm an optimistic economist. Those things don't usually go together. <laughs> and, and, um, but right now I do see like a lot of pessimism. I, I, I don't know how to, to, to tackle all these things at one time, you know, with the federal government potential shutdown and we're running $2 trillion in deficits a year and we're going to be paying net interest payments on the debt of a trillion dollars a year. So that, what does that mean? We're rolling over debt with just new debt. That, that's insolvency. If you had a business or anything like that, this is insolvency that's going on and interest rates keep going up, which means that the net interest payments on the debt are going to keep rising at a more rapid rate. And, and you know, unfortunately, a, a lot of Republicans in Congress don't want to touch Social Security and Medicare, which we have to. And, and when I was in the Trump administration, you know, Trump had already made this pledge, like, look, we're not touching Social Security and Medicare. Um, it, was, it was actually on the back burner. We were going to do that more in the second term, um, but there, there wasn't a second term. Um, but I think that these are things that we've really got to start looking at for the future of our country, for the future of our states, and, and more importantly, in, in my view, the future of the families. Now, my theory is that the public choice economics just doesn't allow it happen, right? Yeah. Because there's just no incentive. As a, as a person who's mostly spent most of my time, econo economics is like a hobby for me. My main gig is politics, right? And the political electoral side and the policy side. And with that, like the only people who have an incentive to want to reform this are the smallest voting blocks in the country. Hmm. Millennials, Gen Z, right? We're the ones who are going to put in a dollar and get back 80 cents. If you're a boomer, you have no incentive and they're the largest voting block. Yeah. So the question is like this, uh, the way I visualize it, and correct me if I'm wrong here, is, is that there's, there's like a race going on to how insolvent can we get before enough of the boomers no longer are dependent on social security for their retirement. Because at some point there's yeah. a young enough boomer that as a generation was like, I'm not depending on this system. It's going to be broke by the time I get there. And that became the norm because that's the norm now. But at some point in, I don't know, the 80s, or maybe the nineties that this became the common way to think about your retirement. And then it might become politically possible at yeah. least for social security. Yeah. 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 No, I, I think you're, you're exactly right. I mean, the, the vote votes matter, uh, public choice economics. That's one of my favorite with James, James Buchanan, uh, which basically said that politicians, they work in their own self, but, you know, their own self-interest as well, just like people in the private sector do. Um, and, and so they worked, you know, they're rational people. And, but, but, and, and so, but their, their decision-making process is different than those of us in the private sector, because what do they have to do? Win re-election. And, and so they have to, it's difficult for them to make these difficult decisions about social security, Medicare. It, it, it's a big problem whenever you put in these large government programs, which goes back to the failures of the FDR, effectively Delano Roosevelt administration and what happened during the 1930s. I mean, they really set us on the stage for um, massive welfare state. A lot of the failures that we've seen along with LBJ uh, during the 1960s uh, and then added on to by Obamacare and, and, and Obama, right? But we've seen this stuff happen over time. And, and, and if, until we can change the narrative about how these programs like Social Security, it's not, I, I know there's a lot of talk that it's an entitlement. 
I don't think we're entitled to anything because if you're entitled to something, if you're given a right to something, then the right can also be taken away by government. And, and in this case, it's not free. There's no free lunch going back to Milton Friedman, right? There's, nothing is free here. There is a cost to it. And we're going to see this very soon. I mean, the actuarial data, which they look at, okay, what's the projected um, expenditures on social security, like payouts over time versus the tax payments that are going to tax revenues coming in. And I think it's now what, 20, 26. Uh, it's coming up pretty quick. It, maybe it's a little bit longer than that. But anyway, it's coming up in the next five years on when it would reach a period of basically insolvency um, where they don't have as much money. You're going to have to have substantial cuts. I think it's 24% cuts in benefits. And, and when those messages start to talk to boomers, like you said, um, and saying, hey, you're going to have some major cuts to this if we don't do something now. And, and I think that there's ways with Social Security to where if we're going to... So, to get a little deeper, I don't even know that we need Social Security. I would rather the private sector work work best. I think we should be able to be in charge of our own future. Why is the government automatically going to take our income to go into a fund that they're going to mismanage? Putting that hat off to the side for a second and living within reality that we're in today, okay, um, I think that we basically say, look, we need a certain cutoff and say below that, you need to choose private savings accounts or something else to go in. And then the other ones we're going to keep on the same system that we're on today. Um, and then that way, I think will help with the political argument, but it's still a difficult argument, as you know, to, to go down that route. And But I think we have to at some point because that portion, Social Security, Medicare and Medicaid are about two thirds of the federal budget, two thirds. And, and so you only have, uh, uh, you know, about a third of the budget that you can really maneuver. And that's what they're talking about last week with the continue resolution or whenever that was uh, here recently, <laughs> I guess it was last week, uh, continue resolution. Yeah. That's all they're really talking about is the discretionary funding. They're not talking about the mandatory spending programs, which are really driving a lot of the deficits and debt over time. Um, and so until we can get around that and define the narrative in a way that people can understand and say, you know what, we've got a crisis on our hands. We've got to do something about it. I, I don't see a path forward to where we actually do something though, unfortunately. So when we look at the kind of three variables they pointed to that, you know, business owners are trying to project and project the amount of consumption they're going to see, right? The government came out with some numbers said consumer spending in the last couple of years has been about 3.8%. And then they said two weeks ago, no, actually it was about 0.8%. So consumer spending was way less. Uh, businesses aren't looking at the government for how consumers are actually going to spend. We don't want to confuse the signals right here, it's, it, but this is the measurement. When businesses are trying to project out and say, I need another person, what you're saying is that as they are saying, I need to hire someone so I can grow with the economy and bring in more income. They never found that person uh, for a bunch of reasons, or there wasn't as much consumption as they thought. So the, all these signals are not working because of the j junk in the signal, like the, the price mechanism, as we've talked about in the show a lot, plays a role in society to signal to people what the available resources are and how to allocate those resources bottom up by people making these decisions. So business looks out and says, I need a new person, so I'm going to go find someone to hire. But then for some reason, they can't fire in that person or that yeah. person, like, like you're saying, might have different preferences now that they used to have. They don't want to work where you're at anymore. They want to work remote or they want to work part time or whatever. So like, how would we understand what are the, what are the barriers and policy solutions so that when that business is seeing a growth in the economy, because the economy is, you know, it might turn around at some point, uh, that they can actually go out and find that person to, uh, to employ. Yeah, no, it's a great point. Um, yeah, do, do you like the Austrian business cycle? Have you 
heard much about I'm, that. I'm, I'm familiar with it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, it sounded a lot like what you were saying right there was uh, the, the Austrian business cycle. Because um, I think there's a lot of truth to it on the Austrian economics side, a school, a school of economics, where they talk about whenever you manipulate interest rates in the economy, like the Federal Reserve does, and like Congress's overspending does too, that that creates distortions throughout the economy. And so you have mm -hmm. boom and bust cycles that tend to occur whenever interest rates are held too low for too long. Then you have all this increase in production and hiring of new jobs and everything else or the anticipation of hiring for new jobs. But within, when markets start to correct, including the price of credit, interest rates start to go back up. It makes it to where all those ideas, those uh, investments aren't profitable anymore and then they collapse. And what's interesting about all that too in economics, not to get too detailed in it, but it's called Cantillon effects, where you have the money that goes in the economy doesn't all go just like, so when the Fed prints money, it doesn't all go just to the lower income or even to um, the private sector, across the private sector, right? It, it really goes through the financial system first, upper income people get it. It's like this trickle down, not the trickle down economics of tax cuts, but the trickle down economics of Federal Reserve's monetary policy. And it doesn't Absolutely. work. Let me, jump, let me jump in there. Let me jump in. This, is, yeah. this is the thing that drives me crazy right now is because yeah. everyone is looking at BlackRock and saying BlackRock is why capitalism is bad. <laughs> but when you have this, and I, you're totally right, my, my, uh, my uh, Capitalism Freedom, your book that I turned you on, mine yeah. was Human Action. Nice. By Mises. Nice. So like, I, I, yeah. Yeah, that's how I got into economics. I that. love that so the, What drives me crazy is how many people are like this over-financialization, these giant financial firms, for example, capitalism was like, no, no, all of this financialization where everything is a financial product and everything is, there's so much money sloshing around there from the government, not to mention the 2008 benefits that uh, the financial crisis gave to BlackRock and gave to these large financial institutions by bailing them out. Yep. You know, the, these, this is not an example. So how would you react to that? Someone says, hey, BlackRock, you're a capitalist supporter. You, why are you supporting the large financial institutions bringing in ESG and doing all these terrible things we hate? Yeah. Yeah. It, it, and it's because they they have too much credit. <laughs> they have too much liquidity on their balance sheet because the Fed keeps throwing more money at them. And to your point, you know, bailing them out, um, you know, all the TARP stuff that we had back in 08, 09 and the funding that went through them and just the Fed's balance sheet too. I mean, it's up to eight, uh, $8 trillion now, you know, and, and, and and um, before I forget, though, I, I'm a huge fan of Eloy Vamesis and um, uh, Human Action, another, another one of my favorite books, for sure. Hayek is another one, The Road to Serfdom. Um, but, mm. but, but yeah, I mean, you're exactly right. We have to understand the boom before we understand the bust, right? And most people will look at the bust first and be like, oh my gosh, all these people lost their jobs. You know, these banks are failing and what's happening here and everything else. But it's like, how do we get there? <laughs> we got there by manipulation of these markets early on, putting too much money into the system um, and everything else. And, 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 and in Congress, you know, we, what was it? The um, Dodd-Frank bill? It, it actually made it to where the bigger banks had even more support for them by Congress. And it weeded out a lot of the small and regional banks, making them even more of a systemic risk if you will, to what happened during the 08, 09 crisis. And that was after that. Dodd-Frank, I think, was in 2010. Um, and so it was after all the crisis and everything. And, and now we're in the situation where these larger banks are having a lot of problems. Was, was it SB, SVB? A lot of these other banks have had some problems. I think we're going to see more of the banks begin to fail as interest rates have went up. And they had all this liquidity. They put it a lot into um, bonds and other things that are out there. Those 
asset prices are changing quickly every day. And at the same time, we're seeing more and more people not being able to afford their car loans and their mortgages. And, and so that's gonna deplete their assets quickly. And so again, we had this huge boom, yay, all this stuff, throw money at everybody. And now the bust is in the process of happening. And, and you know, a lot of people will throw off, be like, oh, the Austrian economists are always talking about the bust happening, when is it happening? And, I, and what I, my retort to them is, is that it is happening. We just may not always be seeing it. It's kind of, at least not on the surface. Because a lot of this stuff mm -hmm. is underneath the surface uh, uh, that, that's not out of plain sight based on government data, right? And, and, but if you look at what happened during 08, 09, people will say, oh, there wasn't any inflation and the Fed printed all this money, did quantitative easing and all this stuff. And they're like, look, Austrian commerce, y'all wrong. And it's like, no, let's hold off a second because um, stock market soared bond prices soared. A lot of the prices throughout the system soared where we had a lot of the bubbles that were taking place and they continued to keep interest rates too low for too long during the, 2000, the, the, the aughts, the 2010s. Um, mm -hmm. and, and this has led to a, a big situation that is ready to burst. And right now, I think we're finally starting to get to some real interest rates in the economy and people are freaking out. And, and if you look back in the 1980s, you know, we gotta look to the past to understand what's happening for the future. 1970s, government printed too much money. They were looking at this debunked Phillips curve, the trade-off between unemployment rate and inflation. Um, and Milton Friedman, that's where he got his Nobel Prize on, was actually debunking that Phillips curve. It's, it's ridiculous. Um, and then you know, Paul Volcker came in, slammed the brake on the printing of money, actually cut the money supply for a while. And, and we led to a double-dip recession that people were like, oh, well, that, you know, what, what happened there? But then you had a period of like great moderation. I'm not saying they did everything perfectly there, but there was some things that took place that really changed the dynamic. And unfortunately, I don't see that dynamic changing right now. There's too many people who want to put more money in the economy through the Fed, through Congress and everything else. And so what I've been saying, like if I'm on Fox Business with Cavuto and, and others, or, um, I'm like, look, we can't just look at the interest rates. The interest rates are just one price. What's driving those prices? The Fed's balance sheet. That, that is inflation. Right, inflation is the mm -hmm. Fed's balance sheet. That's the only thing that they control. That's why they shouldn't have a dual mandate. If we're going to have a Fed, and I'd love to talk about that, like I think we should end the Fed, move to a free banking system, um, is really where my my mind is at. But but yes, the Fed the Fed causes too many problems. And you know, it does start though with Congress, like with excess spending and deficits. The Fed wouldn't have the ammunition it does without the deficits and debt. And debt just hit thirty three trillion dollars. They come in, they buy that debt, they print the money. What if we were reducing the Debt. That would also put less power in the hands of the Federal Reserve as well, which I think would be a better direction. Hmm. That's really interesting. I'm going to jump in here because this is this is going a million miles a minute for Sorry. the average Joes in the audience yeah. like me. Uh, yeah, there, you know, I, I think there's a lot here to to break down and and a lot that people need to understand. I'm curious. So, so you mentioned. Um, well, you mentioned that these indicators, right? Things that you look at to know the health of the economy. And sometimes they're a little skewed. And sometimes, you know, we have to wait months to get the real numbers. If somebody was looking at the economy, feeling like, hey, I'm not seeing this prosperity that Bidenomics is saying I should be feeling. Are there any leading indicators people can look at and, and sort of easily understand to, to see, you know, what's actually happening? What, what can I plan for? What am I expecting in the future? Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I think that there are indicators that people should look at. But if, 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 if I'm not an economist and looking at this stuff every day, um, what I tell 
my friends and family and others is, is like, you know, just save for a rainy day. Like make sure that your own house is in order before you start worrying about other people's houses and everything else. Right. I wish politicians did that too, but that's a whole nother discussion. Um, (laughs) (laughs) um, but I, but I, but I really think that people should be looking out and saying, what, how is my finances? Let me make, let me save for a rainy day. So if I lose my job, I'll still be in a good situation because what happens is when you start getting into a situation where you're living paycheck to paycheck and everything else, if something happens and there is a recession and you lose your job, you're going to be a much worse situation. Had you not planned and saved ahead for, I don't know, six months or how many ever months you can to have that money in the bank. I think that'll be really helpful for you. Um, and you know, those who are looking more at like investing and putting in stocks and bonds is, you know, my, my, I still look at, um, Bert Malkiel's random walk down wall street, uh, book that really helped me to understand a lot about the stock market is you want to be in there for the long term. You know, I, I have quite a bit that's, that's invested in stocks and exchange traded funds and things of that nature. But I look at it more from a longer term perspective and let my income drive my more spending today. And I think if we were uh, more conservative on our own budgets, that that would be a better scenario for us and for, for, for people out there um, to, to be ready for whatever's going to come. Um, Cause uh, you know, unfortunately, I do think that there's going to continue to be a lot of volatility um, that that's out there, both politically, which unfortunately politics drives a lot of stuff, which is one reason why I want to shrink government. Government's too big. So it's influencing a lot of our lives. Um, but it, but it also means that there's going to be repercussions when it comes to education, healthcare. I mean, all this stuff is intertwined in our economy and, and what my approach is on the let people prosper sort of uh, calling or vision that I try to do is to say, you know what, um, the way we prosper is by putting ourselves in in the best situation that we can. And that way we're not as reliant on government and everything else. And if for us, right, uh, if if we get social security later, great, but I'm not going to depend on it. I'm not going to, I'm not going to bet on it. it. Yeah. I'm not going to count on it. Yeah. Totally. Well, and you mentioned volatility and, and you know, the, with the banking instability that you mentioned as well with SVB and, and Signature Bank, there's been some recent uh, news about Bank of America having some some questionable uh, things on their on their balance sheet and there's maybe some uncertainty around Bank of America. Do you have any comment on like what's going on there, how to understand that or, or look at that? Um, not, a, not a whole lot other than, you know, I think that we need more audits. Uh, we should be auditing a lot of these banks. We should be auditing the Fed. Um, we should be finding out exactly what is on these balance sheets because it's all going to come home to roost. And at, at the end of the day, this money is what's sloshing around out there and it's what's being invested and a lot of it with our taxpayer dollars <laughs> and, and, and in a free market capitalist system, that's not how the economy is supposed to work. Prices, you know, y'all were mentioning this earlier, prices are what should direct resources for consumers and the producers, not government intervention. And, and, you know, um, there's a big divide right now. And I'm sure y'all talk about this some of like uh, the nat cons versus free cons and all uh, national conservatism and freedom conservatism. And on the right, there's a big divide that's happening. And, and the industrial policy part of this is really concerning to me um, uh, because when government starts to control resources and plan things, it fails time and time again because it doesn't allow for the prices signals to allocate if it resources efficiently. And, and what, the, what does that do? It makes us um, uh, less prosperous. 
it makes us poorer in the process. And, and this is something that, you know, really concerns me longer term. Absolutely. Yeah, I think there's a there's there's a lot of debate right now. I think you're right. Like the the conservative movement is in a state of flux when it comes to its relationship with economics. Right. There's um, for a long time. I remember the my first time being in D.C. 2013, and I was talking with some folks, and I was like, you know, I'm a I'm a newly born econ nerd at that time, like only five years old, and I was like. Yeah, talking about international trade and we, this trade deal was coming up. We're talking about like the early steps of TPP. Mm-hmm. And I remember everyone around me was like, well, of course, trade trade is good. And like, why, why isn't it even a fight? And I was like, I don't think you guys understand. Back home, a lot of people on the ground are very skeptical of these trade deals and they really don't like them. And everyone in D.C. was like, no one's ever going to not be pro-trade. <laughs> and then all of a sudden, you know, one guy comes along and says like, hey, you can get elected by saying, you know, trade has some costs and we need to pay attention to those costs. And all of a sudden now it's completely different. You go to DC now and everyone's just like, oh, trade. It's it's easier to talk about abortion than it is to talk about trade <laughs> in yeah. DC sometimes. So <laughs> do, you, do you sympathize? Is this is this how you see it too? Yeah, yeah, I, I do. Um, it, it's unfortunate. Um, I I think free trade, and, and I don't look at trade just being international borders. Um, the basic part of economics is trade between individuals. I always try to break things down to one-on-one. If, it, if you can't really explain yes. it to one-on-one, uh, two individuals in the marketplace, then if you try to take it to a macro economy, it, it breaks down. Um, and so just like if I want to tax someone more to give to someone else, there has to be less production in the economy because you only have the two people. That's the same thing if you have an entire economy because it's taking money out. And trade is so important in our, in our lives every day that we don't even think about it. I live near Austin, Texas. I'm exchanging with a lot of companies that are around here. And there's that trust that takes place within that, those trades because of the price signals and everything else that's going on. There's a lot of trade that happens across state borders, Texas and Montana and, and, and others that are out there. But as soon as we start talking about other countries, it's like, oh man, some, something's wrong. But I think we need to get in a re, a, to redefine the narrative that it's not America trading with China, it's Americans trading with the Chinese. Now, we could talk about some of the problems. It's, it's not the same rules of the game, which I think are important. I think that we do need mm-hmm. to recognize that there are some issues with China. They don't play by the same rules of the game. They're a communist country. They're subsidizing a lot. They have a lot of industrial policy. Their economy is going to fail before ours does, though, if you look at what all is going on over there. Um, and, and so when I would have conversations, and I had a lot of these, as you might suspect, when I was in the Trump White House. So I'm a free market guy, right? I mean, I told you all my economists who I, who I like and everything else. And um, so I'm, I'm not for tariffs. And when I would talk to folks like Peter Navarro, Robert Lighthizer, um, I can talk to president as much about that, but, but, but those guys, it, you know, they were very much like, okay, China's a massive threat. They're an existential threat to America. And, um, they're taking all of our internet, uh, our intellectual property, our IP. And, and, and basically they are producing all this stuff and stockpiling it, reducing the prices of steel and other things, um, artificially in the marketplace. And, um, and so we've got to do something about it. So what are we going to do? Let, let, let's put in tariffs. Let's put a 25% tariff in place. Let's put all these other tariffs and stuff like that. And, you know, I, I get it from the surface level going back 
almost like a full circle where we were talking about earlier where the jobs report is you go to the surface level, I get that stuff. And, and they'll argue that trade with China is what hurt the Rust Belt and, and put a lot of people out of jobs. I think the evidence and the research on that is different though. Uh, it was more from automation. Mm -hmm. It was more from the high cost of doing businesses at, business at home that incentivized people to move to other countries. And it just so happens that China has 1.4 billion people and has uh, a lower cost of wages and everything else. And a lot of rare minerals that you can buy things at a much cheaper price. So we would buy it from there. But it was a lot of other things that were happening here. And one thing that, one way I like to put this is that, you know, we often have, when we, when we blame someone else like China, we've got one finger pointing at them, but we've got three other fingers pointing back at ourselves. And I think that we need to look more internally about what we need to do. You know, when the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act went in place, the Trump tax cuts, they cut the corporate tax rate. I wasn't there at that time, but cut the corporate tax rate from 35%, which is the highest in the developed world, to 21%, which is now above the, above the global average. Um, so they need to lower it even more. But that helped to incentivize people to come back home. We were, we were raising our cost. And so we were looking at blaming everyone else for our problems when we should have been blaming ourselves and doing more here at home to to, to fight these battles. And the other thing here, and I'll stop on this issue and I'm glad to answer your questions, but um, is the TPP, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which was with 12 countries, including the United States, Canada, Japan, Mexico, uh, Taiwan, a lot of East Korea. Asian countries. Um, to me, that would have been the best path forward to go after China. Because China mm -hmm. does not care. They're a communist country. They don't have elections, okay? They, they don't care if their Absolutely, people are starving right. in different places or if we're putting tariffs, which I remember tariffs are just taxes on Americans. It might hurt China in the sense that maybe we don't want to pay that higher tax and we don't, they don't have to produce as much to export to us, but it really hurts us in the process and raises prices, especially for the poorest among us who buy things from Walmart and other places. It's going to drastically hurt them in the process. So put that to the side. Um, but if you looked at the TPP, uh, the big argument by Trump and others was that it was not negotiated very good by the Obama administration. I probably agree with that. It had a lot of like green energy nonsense and other stuff in there. But why didn't the Trump administration just come in instead of throwing it out, just renegotiate it? And, and I think that would have been a better process because now you had a huge block of countries, major countries. I think it was like 60%, 65% of the global GDP would have been a part of this. Um, or no, no, it's closer to 45%. Sorry, 45%. I was getting my number turned around, but 45% of GDP. Still a lot though, okay? Um, that would have been within this block. And if China didn't want to you know, deal with the same sort of trade agreements that we had with this, with these countries, they wouldn't have been able to do trade. It would have substantially hit their economy. And I think it would have forced them more, more so than what tariffs would do to a more open market policies because they would have lost so much in, in power and everything else in this, in this marketplace. And so again, I always go back it's Americans trading with Chinese. It's Americans trading with Mexicans. It's not America trading with China or, or, or Mexico. And I get a lot of pushback for that. And that's okay. But I think that we've got to look back at the I'm principles. Yeah. I'm with you, Vance. Like, it's exactly like if you look at it from a geopolitical stage, if you want to disentangle American economics, like supply chains from China, the best thing you can do is cut a trade deal with Japan and Korea. Yeah. I mean, yeah. but then they, they tank that, right? I mean, like, don't get me wrong. Maybe it could have been stronger. Cato yeah. did a really great uh, review. It was like, hey, it's got these problems. But in net, it reduced trade barriers, which is... And then imagine after COVID, you know, while COVID was going on, and we couldn't get anything from anywhere around the world because all the trade lanes were shut down. All the ports... Remember all the reporting around the ports and how jammed up the ports were all at, 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 at the time? If we would have had... 
a brand new trade deal at that time that lowered barriers and didn't have all the cronyism and didn't have all the baggage of the Obama administration because Trump had prioritized that instead. It might have been a lot smoother transition after the end of the pandemic. Uh, it might not have been as brutal up until this point even. I mean, we would be substantially more prosperous now if we had less trade barriers between us and most of the world outside of China uh, that, that, that we would be benefiting from at this moment. So I, I, I think I that's right. As thinking geopolitically, it makes yeah. the most sense. And I just can't understand why uh, the anti-trade fervor got to that place. Because this isn't NAFTA. This isn't some other issue. This is this issue, right? Which yeah. is crazy to me. Well, so if I, I got could some just, straw men. Yeah, no, oh, go if, ahead. No, please. If, go ahead. No, if I could just real quick, I mean, because it's such an important topic that's going on right now, because it leads into a lot of other um, issues that's going on, right? Uh, but it, but it's, it's populism. Right. It, mm. It's populism because it gives us someone else to blame and it gives us a target that we can go after instead of doing something about it ourselves. And um, and, and that's with immigration. Uh, another thing that I always get a lot of, uh, you know, accolades when I talk about like I'm, I'm, I'm for more legal immigration. I, I think that the the issue on the border is real. I mean, I live in Austin, Texas or near Austin, Texas. I don't claim Austin. That's why I keep saying near Austin, Texas. I live in Round Rock, which is just <laughs> north of Austin. I don't claim the like People's Austin. Republic of Austin. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, but along the border is a major problem. I mean, it's a humanitarian crisis that's going on there, that something needs to be done. Um, and a lot of the cost is put on Texas. I mean, our taxes, we've, we've spent, I think it's like 15 to $20 billion over the last five to 10 years of state taxpayer dollars to fund what's going on down there. Um, and, and that's an issue. But like, if you build the wall or just say, look, we're just going to stop the number of people, we're still going to have other ways to get around the wall. These people are coming here for to prosper. <laughs> they're, they're, they're leaving places like Guatemala and Central America and all these places that are having a lot of strife and other issues. And they're trying to come here for a better way of life. Right. I don't see why we shouldn't find ways to get them here. A lot of these are entrepreneurs. And if we had a more, a better legal visa system, then instead of these quotas and other things that are out there, maybe a market-based system, right? Prices matter. I would love to see the day where we have visas. You can have like an auction on the visas <laughs> and maybe businesses pay for who's coming over because they need the workers and you can allow for market to work instead of government controls on the system, I think we would free up a lot of this underground economy that's going on within the illegal immigration that's happening across the country, or you know, Texas in particular, California too, some. Um, but but the same arguments are for free trade or against free trade are against immigration, that they're taking our jobs, they're lowering our wages, they're a major cost, they're driving up welfare. And it's like, but why? Well, maybe our welfare system is too uh, is too giving to Americans in the first place, and, and it's already <laughs> illegal to do that. Like, yeah. to be it clear, is illegal. It's illegal for illegal immigrants to commit fraud and get Social Security. So, just like with Second Amendment issues, if yep. you make it illegaler, it doesn't go away. Like, that's no. not how it works. <laughs> no, no, and, and yeah. it doesn't. And, so you're and, right. And, so you want to do is create an incentive for them to participate in the clear economy, yes. which would be exactly what you're saying. Lower yeah. the barriers so then they can uh, they can be here as um, as legal citizens to work. Yes. And, and markets work too, right? Like there's not just one labor market. There's not just one um, market for trade. Uh, the last point here that I'd make is that there are many markets 
there are high-skilled workers, there are low-skilled workers, there are mid-skilled workers. Who do they actually compete with? So the literature in these areas is that you know trade doesn't lower wages because the people that you're trading with are usually the same income levels. And so you're competing within that particular marketplace and you can actually allow for more division of labor and specialization to happen and therefore more production and economic output and prosperity and all that stuff. The same thing is for... For, for immigration. They are competing with that particular part of the labor market, not the entire labor market. So you can't come out and say that all wages are going down. It depends on where the marketplaces are. And you also have to look at the other side that they also demand more goods and services whenever we are trading with other countries, right? And if we have more immigrants, they're also buying more goods and services. So there's a demand and supply scenario in those labor markets, which is why wages don't go down. That's a really great perspective. And you know, I don't think a lot of people probably think about it that way. So I, I appreciate that very much. Yeah. The power of economics. Yeah. There it is. Yeah. Let me give you some straw men, some lefty straw men here. Okay. We want, we want a, like a different segment here. All right. So the art and this is, I'm going to touch on inf- inflation stuff because that's still, I think the major pivotal issue of our time right now is how to deal with inflation. Cause every, everyone remembers stagflation as a theory, right? We can watch, uh, you know, free to choose and be like, yeah, seems like a major issue. Can we define stagflation really quick just for everybody? who might be listening and not know what that is. Yeah. What's stagflation? What was yeah. Tell us about the seventies. <laughs> yeah. So stagflation is a period of economic stagnation where the economy is just kind of, you know, turning along and there's not really a lot of economic growth. Maybe the unemployment rate is staying pretty high during the 1970s. I mean, we had double digit unemployment rates for a while. Um, and then the inflation part of it is just high inflation. So there were also double digit inflation rates during the 1970s. And so this period of economic stagflation is what it's called is a period of economic stagnation and inflation. And we've had that recently where we've had slow economic growth. Um, the unemployment rates remain low, but that's because so many people have dropped out of the labor force. So if you drop people out of the labor force, you're going to bring down the unemployment rate arbitrarily um, or artificially, I should say. And, and which doesn't really reflect what's really happened in the economy. I actually don't like the unemployment rate. It's not, it's not really telling us much about the economy. You want to look at the labor force participation rate or the employment population ratio, something like that, because the numerator, the unemployment, uh, the number of unemployed and the denominator labor force are both volatile. They, they can both move up and down. And it doesn't give you a good signal about the market, uh, the labor market. Whereas if you look at the labor force participation rate, it's the labor force, which can be volatile, but the population on the denominator, which is more stable. And so that gives you a better picture of what's happening in the labor market. Um, and, and so there was a lot of talk about this stagflation in the 1970s, and it, it hurts uh, Americans. You know, there's a, there's a lot of reasons for that. I think it's driven a lot by the Federal Reserve. Uh, you know, we go back to that again in Congress. Um, but yeah, we've, we've seen it again, and, and unfortunately. But the question is, is why did all the greedy corporations raise their profits and therefore by raising their prices and cause inflation? That's the, that's my, that's my strong. <laughs> yeah. So but I think it's, it's the most common narrative. Like it, it's, it is yeah. so hard to debunk. It's so hard to get people off this, but this is a common question people are going to get where they need a good ec- economics answer. How would you answer that? Yeah. I mean, it, if, if they were always greedy, then why are they just raising prices now? Right. I mean, they got together it, it, at their corporation owning meeting and said, it's time to raise prices, guys. Right, you know, right. In a smoky so room gre- over cigars, they're like, we're going to do it. With monocles. Yeah. I'm envisioning monocles. <laughs> yeah, the whole thing. yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, that, this is, this is a one thing that I try to do a lot with the progressive left and even some on the right, honestly, is I try to ask the question back. Like, 
how, how do they answer this question about why are they just raising prices now? Because if those companies are greedy, a lot of them are the same companies that were there before, most all of them. <laughs> why weren't they always raising prices? Greed, greedflation is a myth. There, there's not greedflation. In fact, we're all greedy to a certain extent. That's why we want income. That's why we're working. You know, the, the way that we as humans work is that we save in order to consume. What does that mean? We save some of our time that we could otherwise, otherwise be doing something else to work. We don't want to work necessarily. I think it brings dignity. I think it brings respect. If I even came from a biblical perspective, I think God called us to be fruitful and multiply, right? Multiply is something else. <laughs> um, but fruitful <laughs> is important about work to where I think it's, I think it's in us to do that, but we like our leisure time. You know, uh, we want to, we want to spend time with our family and do other stuff that's out there, spend time on, you know, social media or whatever it is. Um, and, and so when we're looking at all these different factors, I, I don't see how corporations are just going to be greedy just whenever there's time of inflation. It would be all the time. And, and the other part that I like to push back on them is, aren't politicians greedy? How much more money do they want from me? How much more money do they want from businesses to be able to redistribute out of the system um, when taxation is theft, right? This is, this, is, this is money that you're taking from me. I get it. I'm not an anarchist. I'm not an anarcho-capitalist either, but I believe in very limited government. Uh, I'm a, I'm a, a, you know, um, and, and so whenever I'm thinking about these things, that's the, that's the, the area that I'm really trying to find. Okay, how do, what's the roles for government? That's something else that I think we need to get back to is what are the roles of government? And, and, and them coming in and saying whether or not companies are greedy or a lot of the antitrust policy that's happening right now by the Biden administration and Lena Khan over at the Federal Trade Commission, Cantor at the Department of Justice on their antitrust division. I mean, these are really scary parts of what's happening right now in America that they are trying to go straight after these quote unquote big tech companies and others calling them monopolies. And from my viewpoint, kind of going to human action and love of Mises is that there's not, there's, there are not private sector monopolies as long as there aren't barriers and everything else which are created by government, that there is always the threat, the potential for new entrants to compete in the marketplace. And so we don't have monopolies. The only monopolies we have are government entities that are monopolies. They, sh they should be breaking down government monopolies. They should be breaking down government schools that are, that are um, causing a disaster for our education system. They should be breaking down the healthcare system where they are making us have higher prices and, 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 uh, and, and less out optimal outcomes for the healthcare sector. That's really where we should be going at, not calling greedflation for, for all these um, you know, profitable corporations and everyone else, is that instead, let's make sure that we're removing any sort of, uh, one area where I would agree with them to some extent is all the, um, the handouts, the corporate welfare to businesses. But again, that's a government failure. That, that's not a market failure. That's not capitalism. That, 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 that's socialism. That, that, that's not capitalism. And so I think we've got to be able to do a better job of separating these out. And I think too, you know, that this is an area where fiscal conservatism, um, sound economics really needs to be talked about more. In my view, there's not quote unquote conservative economics. There's not roles for industrial policy in the economy to direct resources. That is going to set us up for failure. And unfortunately, too many are doing it across the country. Vance Ginn for president. I'm going to say it first. <laughs> Excellent. No, I mean, I think that, I that was great. That actually, that's two, a lot of trade-offs. Uh, that's fair. That's fair. Well, uh, you can be Fed chairman then for a brief time before you dissolve it from the inside, right? Amen. 
<laughs> I do. I am curious though, if you wouldn't mind weighing in and, and I understand if you, if you want to preserve, you know, your, uh, um, in your Switzerland status in this, uh, who do you think from the Republican primary field has the best economic policy at this point from what you know? Yeah, it's, it, it's an interesting, um, field <laughs> for, for what's going on. You know, I, I, w- I was hopeful that governor DeSantis in Florida would talk more about the Florida model. Um, I've done a lot of work in Texas. I was coining a lot from when I was working at the Texas Public Policy Foundation, kind of the Texas model. And I think that's worked well for a while. I think they're kind of going in a wrong direction now, but Florida has been getting a lot of things right for a while. And so I thought governor DeSantis has a lot of things to go on. Um, unfortunately, I think he's moved too much in the woke uh, stuff with Disney and other things going on. I, I understand that populism gets a lot more votes probably, but I think it's taking it in the wrong direction from my view. Um, but I do hope that he can get these, some things together. Um, I, I, know I like Vivek Ramaswamy. I think he talks a really good game. Uh, I don't agree with them on everything. I don't agree with any of them on everything for sure. Um, but I think that he has a good game. I, I met him at young Americans for Liberty. I emceed their recent revolution conference this year and met him there. Great guy. At, you know, I think he talks a good game. He talks about ending the fed. He mentioned that, you know, several times. Um, but he gets kind of caught up on some of the other stuff. But, but anyway, I think, and you know, we'll, we'll see how it goes. I think the powers that be, it's very difficult to come outside if you're not already part of the establishment and part of the political class. Um, you know, who else though, I think has been talking a good, a good game lately. And I don't agree with her on everything, but as governor Nikki Haley from South Carolina, like she's actually talking about cutting government spending. Now that's a, that's an uphill battle, but at least she's talking about it. Um, because to me, the ultimate burden of government is not by how much it taxes, but by how much it spends. Who said that? Milton Friedman. Um, and, and we've got to look at government spending. And it's what I do a lot with my life's work is finding ways to cut, limit, do whatever we can to go after government spending. Because if you don't cut government spending, or so let me put it a different way. If we're going to keep spending, we've got to keep taxing. If we're going to keep spending, we're going to keep regulating. You can't regulate and you, you don't need to tax if you don't spend it. So spending is really where the problem is. And the excess of government spending, especially at the federal level, um, is also what's driving all the problems with monetary policy and the Fed. And so we could also get control a lot of what the Federal Reserve is doing if we just had more sensible, responsible um, policy at the federal level. And I just released, um, so I'm a senior fellow at Americans for Tax Reform. And um, Grover Norquist and I, he's the president of America's Tax Reform. We just had a piece out in the Wall Street Journal uh, yesterday, um, or maybe two days ago two days ago now, <laughs> um, but this week, uh, the Wall Street Journal talking about that spending is the problem. Now we know that, but we actually put numbers to it to where there's a website, atr.org forward slash budget project, where you can go on and you can compare every state with how they look compared to like something like population growth plus inflation, which is the average tax, um, the average ability for taxpayers, the average taxpayer's ability to pay for government spending is what I mean to say. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, and we wrote about that in the Wall Street Journal. And so I think that we need more of these candidates talking about the excessive government spending that's happening and everything else. And um, I, I don't know, I guess uh, those are kind of my three that I've been watching so far. And I mean, I think Trump is, it's, you know, he's, he's, he's going to be there. Um, I, it's going to be an uphill battle, I think, for, for any of them. But we'll see where that kind of goes. Um, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm cautious about Trump, just given the free trade stuff we talked about before, the lack of really wanting to cut government spending. Uh, I think the Trump tax cuts were big. 
I think the deregulation under the Trump administration were big. I mean, that really created, we, the economy was really booming in 2019 before then all the shutdowns, which is also mm-hmm. gives me some pause too about how that was all handled with Fauci and Burks. And, you know, I was one of the ones in the White House was saying, look, we cannot shut down. You know, at the Situation Room, I was like, we cannot shut down. This is going to be a major disaster taking place. And there was so much uncertainty at that time. Uh, you know, I, I, I can't doubt everything and throw, throw bad marks, but there was a lot of concern about people's health and safety, which I understand, but not as much about the trade-offs. And that's what mm-hmm. economics, going full circle again, really looks a lot about are trade-offs. And while I understood that maybe we need resources in certain places, I would rather have the, there have been targeted resources to people who need it the most compared to blanket policies and everybody being sent home, businesses shutting down. Because what I think it did was actually slow down the process even more. And, and it, put, it put entrepreneurs to the sidelines and said, you know what? You might come up with the next best thing to overcome COVID or whatever the next thing is going to be, but I'm going to send you home. And government is going to be the solution. And the government should never be the solution. And so I think that that really brings them a lot of... Uh, uh, problems um, and, and mm. for what that precedent is set. And so I hope that we never do that, something like that again. That was great. Yeah, yeah. I, I totally agree. They, one of the things I thought was interesting took me by surprise because he's not well known for his passionate defenses of the free market was Governor Chris Christie in the last yeah. debate responding to artificial intelligence had a really great, I mean, typical populist sort of uh, tee up from Fox business. And then he absolutely smashed the answer, which is, you know, the, uh, uh, articulating a light regulatory climate for AI, uh, yeah. and especially when it comes to labor markets, there's a lot of fear. Uh, do you have any thoughts about like, how should we think about the effects that AI might have in the labor marketplace? Yeah. So I, I do a lot of work with like the Pelican Institute in Louisiana and they have, they do a lot of tech stuff and I, I've been writing more on tech. Most of my stuff's like fiscal policy work and some poverty relief initiatives, but I've been doing more in the tech space because I think that it's the wave of the future, right? If, if we don't get this right with technology and everything else, it's going to stifle our ability to prosper in the future. And um, I'm really concerned that not only from the FTC, like the antitrust stuff that's going on with AI, but also even, you know, Elon Musk, who doesn't live too far from where I'm at here in Texas. Um, I think he gets a lot of stuff right, you know, but at the same time, they were like, look, let's put a pause on AI. Like, are, are you serious? Like, why, why would America put a pause? And then China and other countries, they're not going to push pause. It's kind of what gives me, and we didn't even talk about this, but climate change, right? Like, how are we going to stifle this if, if America, which we're actually cutting carbon emissions, if carbon emissions is really creating global warming and all that. So let's just assume that it is right now. We're actually going down. Whereas China and other places, India, uh, they're going up. And so you can't control it that way, just like you can't control AI. And I, and I, I think that we can't be scared. That's what I see right now is a lot of fear right? There's a lot of fear about AI, artificial intelligence, what the future is going to hold, how it's going to quote unquote, take the other jobs, just like we were talking about earlier with free trade and, and immigration, that these AI are going to take our jobs. And I just don't believe any of that stuff. I mean, if you look at recorded history and creative destruction, another good economist, Joseph Schumpeter, uh, that's another, another good plug there. Um, but you know, what he talked about is that you need creative destruction that that's going to happen over time. And I don't think we should fear it. I don't think it's a role for government to come and bail out everybody out either. Um, and because I know we're going to hear a lot about that. Well, we need a universal basic income, a UBI and all this other nonsense. And it's like, no, just let the marketplace work, free them up. If you're going to do any regulations, make sure that it's really light 
And so that way we can move forward because to your point though, Governor Christie was saying is like, look, if we shut this all down, we're going to be, we're going to be losing out in the process because AI is going to improve our lives. And, and from my view over time, and that we will be able to overcome the obstacles that we have by adapting, just like we're going to deal with um, changing weathers because look, the climate is always changing. I don't know if y'all knew that, uh, but the climate's always changing, whether it's man-made anthropogenic global warming or whatever else, uh, as you might can tell, I'm not a huge, uh, believer in that, but you know, I think, I think that's, what's great Climate about science. Denier. <laughs> yeah, I know, I know. But, but like, you know, yeah. I think that's, what's all good about science is people will say, Oh, it's right. the science has told us, well, that's not how science works. Science is mm. constantly moving forward to test different hypotheses. There's not one science. And so we need to keep thinking about these things, but the more and more research that I've seen and evidence and everything else is kind of the opposite because really what I believe what they want more um, when it comes to AI, when it comes to the big tech companies, when it comes to climate change is not so much about what's best for people. It's about control. And they believe that they are the experts, the tyranny of experts, um, where they can come in, they can solve the problems and make everything better, which is why Congress gets in the way, um, presidents get in the way, the Federal Reserve gets in the way. I mean, we need to have rules in place. I'm a big fan of rules, whether it be a fiscal rule, like a spending limit, on for states, local governments, and the federal government. Um, I'm not a huge fan of balanced budget amendments because um, then you can raise taxes and, and taxes don't solve the problem. It just makes the problem worse. You really got to focus on spending. And I'm also a fan of monetary rules, something like the Taylor rule um, or even a money rule. If we're going to have the Fed, first of all, if we're going to have the Fed, yeah. I think we probably will for a while, then we need rules in place that can get away from the discretion that we have otherwise, because then we're left to whatever these experts think that they know. Um, and these rules are always wrong too. They, they, you know, it's made by man. We're, we're, we're fallible at the end of the day, but I think it helps us to create more certainty in the marketplace place instead of the uncertainty that's driven by politics. Absolutely. You, you mentioned there's a lot of fear and I'm, I'm curious what your thoughts are around the government shutdown because that's been big in the news. And I think a lot of people may have a lot of fear around losing access to government services that they may rely on or that they may enjoy. Uh, speaking of trade-offs, like what are the trade-offs there if we, if we fail to get spending under control? Yeah. If, if, so the, the trade-offs, for a long time, it's been tough to talk about government spending and the cost of it. I mean, I could talk about it, the, the trade-off with the private sector. You know, there's, there's no free government spending, so every dollar comes out of the productive private sector whenever they tax us. Um, and that's one way, but I think people, they don't really connect it to that. Uh, and I could talk to you about how our national debt, which is $33 trillion, it, you know, how that's about $100,000 per person. So each of us owe 100000 Or per taxpayer, though, it's close to $250,000. Uh, actually, more than that now as has increased so rapidly. So I think we're all taxpayers. So we owe actually over 250000 But our kids owe 100000 you know? Um, and, and so that starts to connect a little bit. But people are like, ah, we're not going to have to pay it off, you know? Um, but I think we're starting to see this more now to where it's starting to connect with people more because the cost of this excessive spending are the deficits and the debt, the interest payments, and that interest, those interest payments and that debt are sold in the marketplace and it pushes the price of bonds down and interest rates up. So we're seeing interest rates soar. Well, the Fed doesn't always want, the Federal Reserve doesn't always want interest rates to go up because they have their target interest rate, the federal funds rate and all that. So if it starts to go up above where they want it to be, they'll buy more bonds, they'll put more money into the marketplace and all that, 
which increases inflation. And so what we've seen now are the direct results of the excess spending and everything else is that inflation, higher interest rates, you losing your mortgage, you losing your car, you losing your business because of all this goes back to excessive government spending. I think we have a direct connection now of all these things starting to go together and we can see the trade-offs today. It's not something that we can just say, oh, this is going to happen in the future when you have to pay your taxes. No, you're, you're facing this now, which is another thing that we haven't even really talked a lot about, but I think that's why we're seeing so many strikes by the UAW workers, the United Auto Workers, other strikes that are going on across the country is that they can't keep up with inflation. It's creating a lot of strife. And so they are wanting to push back even though I think it's going to make the situation worse <laughs> for the economy and even for them because some people are going to lose their jobs. Um, it, but it's all driven by the excessive government spending. And we've got to get back to what are the roles for government? Um, in, in my view, I think that there's rule, the roles for government are you know, national defense in the sense of having order within the marketplace. Um, because if we're always being worried about being shot or killed or just a lot of going back to uncertainty, right? The volatility that happens. Like if you're in the Middle East, it's difficult for your economy to work because you, you know, it, you don't know what's going to happen. A suicide bomber and everything else, it's very difficult for economy to work. So I think that some sort of, um, some of that security is important. Not too much though, because then it can go in the other direction, like the Patriot Act and stuff. Um, but then you also have, you know, I think uh, a, 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 a justice system, that that's blind, I think is, is important because we're, it's difficult for us to judge each other uh, without just like shooting each other, you know, or something like that. So I think a justice system is important and maybe some public goods. Um, it's difficult for me to think a lot about those, but, but maybe there are some, my dad had epilepsy growing up or when I was growing up and he died from sudden unexpected death and epilepsy. Um, and, you know, maybe there are some people where it's very difficult for civil society to, to help them. I think it wouldn't be if we weren't taxed so much, <laughs> um, but <laughs> right. But 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 if we, we're in that situation now, so maybe there are some roles there. But that would be a much smaller government than what we have today. I mean, we're up to what five point five trillion dollars with a T in federal government spending. Um, the, the the national defense, you know, our, our um, Department of Defense running around 800, 850 billion dollars. I don't think it actually needs to be that much. I love to see the Defense Department um, audited and uh, there's a lot of waste that, that's there that we could be spending that money more wisely. Um, but let's say it was, we just took 850 billion, you took the justice system, another 100 or so billion. So let's say it's a trillion dollars. A trillion dollars <laughs> compared to the 5.5 trillion dollars means 4.5 trillion more dollars in the productive private sector. That way we could help each other out more. And, and you know, I, we talk about some of this um, with the breakdown of the family and everything else and how we can support them more through child tax credits and other things. That's putting Band-Aids on the problem from a government solution when government is the problem, in my view. And, and when you do that, you make two wrongs, don't make a right. And it makes the problem worse. And so, you know, I know it's a long way to say it, but Government spending is the problem. And, and we see the trade-offs now. They're all around us. And we've got to make this um, known more, which is one reason why like I do my Let People Prosper show podcast and love being on fo with folks like you to, to really talk about these things because I think we need to talk about them more. I mean, for better or worse, we don't have the Milton Friedman of the world anymore. Uh, I think there are a lot of other good economists that are out there, but you don't have someone who's going into the universities and going right against the progressives going on the Phil Donahue show, 
and 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 going right after that stuff. I mean, I think a little bit of Mises, Hayek were great economists, but they did not have the same sort of way of explaining things to where people could understand like Milton Friedman did. Um, and, and I, you know, I don't agree with everything Milton Friedman um, wanted to do, but but I think he he had this way of changing people's minds just by. And, 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 and what's kind of funny is on YouTube, you can watch all of Milton Friedman's uh, a lot of his um, speeches. I still go back and watch those speeches because I, I, I'd love to learn how to, con, yeah, how to make sure that I'm explaining this in the easiest way possible. And there's so much good stuff that's there. So anyway, I'll, I'll stop. <laughs> I get it. It's so challenging. And we're at a moment, I think, of needing to advertise, you know, why our solutions are better, right? I mean, like the classic, you know, theory of change for politics. You got to be the guy in the room with the best idea to solve the problem when it's a problem. You know, you, if, you, if no one agrees it's a problem, no one's going to be looking for a solution, right? Uh, that's actually the human action model from human action, right? Is that you got to have a, a, like a feeling of uncertainty where you identify a problem. You got to imagine a future state where you can solve it. And then if you're the guy in the room said, if we just lower trade barriers, if we just cut spending, not taxes, uh, if you just do these things and we'll have these benefits and that's how you get the political changes you want. That's how we abolish the draft. That's how we yeah. uh, stop things like... Um, you know, or the Volcker fat or, or things like that, the, the solve stagflation. We need that now. And we need those kind of articulate. So sorry, that's my bad. Uh-oh. Over here, knocking things around. My bad. Sorry. <laughs> um, okay. So we got questions from our discord. Now we just start, we just launched our own community discord. We got people coming in every day. Thank you everybody who's joined us. Uh, and we got, a, we put out a, a, an ask for asking Vance, uh, some hard economics questions and that we got the hardest one first, <laughs> Yes. which Let's is, do it. uh, when is the housing market going to crash? So maybe I could afford a house someday. Oh man. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I think we're in the midst of it now is that a lot of these prices are starting, home values are starting to go down, especially if you're on the, the West coast, California, places like that. I mean, it's really coming down a lot. San Francisco, it, it's really, um, it, it's going to be interesting though. Um, it, it really is kind of a segmented market right now because you have places like San Francisco, LA, New York, um, Austin, where I'm at or near, remember near, near, near Austin, um, that, that, <laughs> because they all saw these huge increases in home prices because of a lot of the zoning laws that were in place. I mean, it's, it's back to policies. A lot of it's driven by the Fed too. I make always mention the Fed because of the, the manipulation that they did of interest rates of keeping you know, interest rates too low for too long, created this buy now phenomena, like more people wanting to buy houses across the country. And then you had COVID and the shutdowns, people could move around a lot more and work remotely. And, and not necessarily be tied to an urban center. And, and this has contributed to a lot of home value increases across the country. Um, the, the one caveat here though, so I do think that over the next year, home prices are gonna come down quite a bit because higher interest rates, I mean, mortgage rates are at 8%. Uh, it's the highest in 23 years. We haven't, you know, we haven't seen this too, since 2000. Um, this, the generation really, the people buying homes has never seen it this high. And, and, mm. and that will influence the supply of homes because now it's more costly to build them and the demand side as well. And it's kind of the boom and bust cycle though, right? So we saw the huge boom. Now we're seeing the bust. We've got to learn the boom part of what happened. And, and, and when we start to learn, understand that more, we'll understand the bust. But we were also going to see what's called the lock-in effect, right? Um, with interest rates being so high and home values being so high, 
someone's not as willing to sell their home because what are they gonna buy? They're gonna have to buy a smaller home. They're gonna have to pay more per month. For the same home, you're probably gonna be paying about twice as much per month. You know, in my home where I got uh, three years ago, I think we got a 2.9% interest rate, 3,000 foot, uh, 300 foot, 300 square foot home, good size. Um, you know, I don't know that I would be able to afford it now, or I would be able to afford it, but not as, mm-hmm. not as easily as I can now because of the interest rates and everything else that are out there. And if that's me who makes pretty good money, um, what about those lower income people? I mean, there's no way that they're going to be able to afford things. And unfortunately, it's going to hurt the millennials, which I'm still considered a millennial as, as in 1981. Um, I'm, I'm like the old millennial, I guess now, for better or worse. Um, <laughs> but then like Generation Z and everything, like, I don't know how they're going to afford anything. I mean, rent prices are through the roof. It, it really is a struggle. And I think this goes back to why so many people find like binomics just isn't working, is that it's working for those who have income, uh, it, it's actually going towards the people that they keep calling greedy. <laughs> they're, they're the ones that are benefiting from these dang policies. And, and, and you know, it's, a, it's like, okay, or who are y'all really for here? Um, <laughs> and, right, and, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And so long story short there, I think that there will be a lock-in effect though with the interest rates and everything that are going to keep some housing prices in different areas of the country higher than they otherwise would be. But whenever interest rates start to stabilize or even come back down some, a lot more people are going to start to move. And then that will really crush the system because there'll be a lot more houses on the marketplace. And that that might be another probably three years down the road. Um, So unfortunately, it's going to be a tough time for a little while. And if you can afford it, you just have to do it sometimes. We can't just think about homes being an investment and how much you're going to make over time. You also need a place to live. You need a good community, you know, all these other things that should be factors. And because the trade-off is, is you don't move into those houses now, and then you lose that opportunity to be in that home that, that you'll feel make it home yourself. And so um, you always think about the trade-offs. The next one is we're going to, we're going to dig deep with some nerdism here, uh, and get a lot more theoretical with, uh, Adam's question, which is what are the consequences of a society whose economy incentivizes efficiency out of balance with robustness when faced with externalities beyond prediction, black swan events. Okay. Yeah. And how did that first, what was the first part of that question again? Yeah, no, it's a complicated question. Come yeah. on, do it, do it, do it better, Adam. Let's go. Uh, so yeah. <laughs> it's all right. Yeah, Adam's Adam's a good friend. Uh, what are the consequences of a society whose economy incentivizes okay. efficiency out of balance with robustness when faced with externalities beyond prediction? Got it. No, that's a great question. Um, you know, I guess there's a lot of ways to kind of tackle that from different directions. Um, Efficiency matters, robustness matters, all that matters. And I, I just go back to what we've been talking about. Free market capitalism is the best path, best path to let people prosper. And so you should focus on letting markets work and not getting government involved. Um, but the, the pushback from a lot of folks will be, well, yeah, but you, you moving into that area of efficiency, you lose sight of the externalities. So the externalities are where there's an something happening that's not affecting the particular marketplace, like an innocent bystander influenced by pollution, that would be a negative externality that's not being internalized within that market price of the coal-fired power plant or however you want to think about it. There's also positive externalities where government schools are supposed to be uh, positive externalities where there's a benefit for people to pay for or subsidize 
government schools. So that way society, the innocent bystanders around them will be better off. I think that's debunked because government schools do not improve outcomes. Go ahead. Yeah, let me let me give you a, a like if you're a conservative, you want a great way to explain a positive externality to someone else. A robber won't go into your home because he knows that your neighbor might have a gun. Mm, yeah. Right. He's not yeah. going to go into your home because he's uncertain, but he yeah. knows that firearms are legal in this area. So therefore, the firearm being legal is a positive externality to everybody because yeah. the fact that they're a firearm ownership means that that robber is less likely to do a bad thing. That's yeah. a good example. Yeah, I like that one. So, you know, uh, so yeah, the, the, the externalities aren't in the market price. And so we right. need mechanisms to navigate externalities, positive and negative. And, and we got to be careful, though, because when we go too far down this line of thinking with externalities, it oftentimes gets in that government needs to be a solution. So um, with carbon emissions, the government will come in as a solution of a carbon tax. Um, if it happens to be with roads and congestion, they'll talk about a gas tax. So there's always these mechanisms that they'll say are market-based mechanisms that are correcting the prices that are uh, being inefficient or not doing what they need to do within the private market. We're going to correct it. In my, and these are called Peguvian type of taxes in those instances that I gave you before. Um, and I just think that we have to be very careful. I, I think that the private market does internalize these prices. Um, they, they, they do understand what's happening within the, prof, the profit loss system. Because if we go in a direction where we say, you know what, we need greener, we need more EV cars, electric vehicle cars and stuff like that. Um, if the price gets too high, then we won't do it. If the price is too low, then we will. Let the prices work. Don't come in and start trying to subsidize electric vehicles or tax them or um, uh, um, subsidize wind and solar, unreliable sources of energy. You know, I think you need to let the marketplace work because my, from my perspective, government failure is more costly than any sort of perceived market failure. Because when the government gets involved, they're going to misallocate resources and make the situation worse for the supplier and the consumer. And they're not going to get the outcomes that we want. You know, if we really wanted the outcome that I think some want um, on, on green energy is that there should be zero carbon emissions. That's ridiculous, but that's what they'll want. Well, a, a, a carbon tax can never get you to that because a carbon tax <clears throat> would tax the carbon. It would reduce the carbon right then. But if it goes to zero, then you've ended all the exchanges that were taking place right? It would have to go up. They'd have to raise the tax high enough. And, and if you're trying to internalize that cost in the marketplace, why not let the price do it instead of a carbon tax? Because also what they try to do is they put a carbon tax in and they spend it on other things like subsidizing wind and solar, or, or there's a trade-off there, right? That they'll do. So they become dependent on that source of revenue to the government. Mm. government. They really don't want carbon emissions to go down. They want control and they want more government. And so I, I really try to stay away from that and stick, away, stick with, you know, markets work best. Let's work on efficiency. Um, I think another big issue here is on income inequality. Um, there are some good books. I'm actually going to have uh, Senator, U.S. Senator Phil Graham on my podcast here soon talking about his book on the myth of income inequality in America um, because of the way that we've kind of looked at it over time. It's just, you know, with inflationary measures and, and how it's been moved and manipulated over time. Um, that capitalism from the bottom up approach is a much better way to equal outcomes. We don't, I don't even want to equal, but equal opportunity, right? Compared to a top down approach of equal outcomes where now we have fewer people that don't have that opportunity. You can either let prices ration the allocation of resources, 
or you have to ration it in other ways through long waiting lines, through starvation, through, you know what I mean? Like there are always a trade-off that's involved and you should let the market work. Hope that helps. Well, yeah, one thing on the theory that I, I want to point out uh, for Adam too is, is to think about the process of which you um, pay for an externality and how you get there, right? So there's one process that's the progressive thesis, right? We're going to put the smartest people in charge of the FDA and they're going to they're going to make sure that we don't have any externalities or the EPA or whatever institution that is. And the smart people are going to regulate the industries to prevent externalities from happening in the first place. Unfortunately, they don't have the knowledge to actually do that, right? They suffer from the fundamental problem of why socialism doesn't work and all these other central planning don't work is that they can't know what they need to know in order to do that. What will allow people to know is a judicial process after an injury, which is a much better way to deal with externalities because then you actually have to deal with material evidence, an adversarial process and discovery where you bring facts together and then use a neutral third party to establish truth and then determine justice by injury. And then you, and then you have a price such as like, a fee or a fine or, you know, a compensation that is then a market signal outside the market to say, okay, this practice that this person was found guilty of when a material adversarial process is now something that we should be aware of, right? The, the trick is, is only when you get to the place where you have public goods sitting in the middle, like the Chattanooga River and pollution of, the, of a public area, then the government should be there to protect the commons to then sue that business for producing, polluting the commons. But you want to be careful about that because then you have the, all the perverse effects of a monopoly, the government being the one doing that which is it's an income source and it's a way to run elections and it's a way to, you know, not see any of the trade-offs to the production of things that might cause pollution as as an example. And and, and to all that point, you know, you go into Ronald Coase and others, right, um, is you want to find private- Oh, the Coase theorem. Yeah, yeah. Tell us the the Coase theorem. This will be the fifth time we've covered the Coase theorem, but we need to remember it. I've already forgotten it, please. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, but, but yeah, Ronald Coase, University of Chicago, um, the, the Coase theorem is basically you want to find a, a price to internalize that externality instead of the government coming in and you allow for individuals to set up. There's the barking dog next door. That's always the classic example. It's basically just those individuals should come together to find a price of, of, of for that person's sleep or find a way to keep that dog inside. But there, there are other ways to go about it or through the legal system, like you mentioned there. I think that's a great point is that there are other ways to go about this mechanism than the government from the front end um, instead of the government being on the back end of these transactions. Um, and that's a that's part of my big kind of philosophy too, is the government should be the last resort in whatever it does. And too often it's becoming the first resort. And that's why we you've got so many problems. This is this is an interesting kind of extrapolation on our AI discussion earlier, but I think it I think it takes in a slightly different direction than where mm-hmm. we went before. Uh, how is the market labor market affected with increasing pressure to be more productive with less uh, with, with less, more productive with less, and I spe- specifically enabled by technology, which evolves faster than given labor can adjust. Hmm. Meaning, if you have AI growing really fast and taking more jobs, how can we allocate new jobs in kind of the candle makers example or the automobile to uh, driving horses? Uh, question where you have uh, you know a, a relatively slow march with this acceleration that we have by new technology. Um, how's the labor market going to be able to adjust with that? Yeah. Yeah. I'm no, trying that's a great to do question. your answer, your question justice at, I'm sorry. <laughs> if yeah, watching. no, that's a good, that's a good question. Go um, and I think it's a tough one. I think that's what a lot of people are struggling with right now. I think 
uh, it's a lot of the industrial policy of how do we make sure that people have jobs or certain jobs don't go away and things of that nature. And I always go back to the, the market, like we were talking about earlier. Um, what can we do to lower the cost today? Um, one of the big areas that I see this, I think maybe be a good example uh, for the audience is, is um, thinking about the minimum wage right? Like there's a push, there has been a push for a long time of a living wage of $15 an hour. And a lot of people, you know, a lot of states actually are at that. I think California, New York, some others. Um, but you still have some states who are following the federal minimum wage of seven twenty-five an hour, which is what it is in Texas. What's, what's the minimum wage there? I think it's seven twenty-five here. I think so. Yeah. yeah. It's, but no makes, one pays that. Like right yeah, yeah, now no, it's like, no. if you're getting paid less than $18 an hour, you're like, Oh yeah. yeah. Or that's out of yeah. very rural places. Right. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. That's right. But, but the minimum wage has been one where they'll say, you know, going back to market failure, there's a market failure that's happening, the inefficiencies that are happening and everything else. Um, and we're going to lose all these jobs because of technology and everything else like, um, kiosks. And so if you think about McDonald's, um, McDonald's moved to a lot of kiosks whenever you go in to buy food. Uh, and, and, it, some of the cashiers have been let go, but they still have cashiers there as well if you want to use them. But the higher that the minimum wage goes, there's the trade-off where it's more costly to, to employ workers and less costly for capital. So there's a labor capital trade-off here that's going on. And so you hire, you, you employ more of the kiosk. You know, I'm, you know uh, kiosks can't call in sick. <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. they, they um, don't talk back. Uh, they're usually pretty good at counting and giving out their correct change and all that stuff. They're, you know, they're, so they're pretty inefficient in that sense. And what's interesting is that all these people who talk about raising the minimum wage higher and higher, you and therefore incentivize more capital accumulation, more things, which could be good, but I don't, but it's actually hurting the people that they're trying to help. Cause really they're trying to help the, well, their intention. I think we have to look at the results, not their intentions, but the intention I think of the policy would be to help those individuals who are working at McDonald's, making a low pay to get an increase in pay so they can afford more for their family. Right. But the problem is, is that when you make it too high and we're seeing this a lot across the country is that it makes automation and, and capital cheaper. Well, who makes the kiosk? Who came up with it? It's a high-skilled person, engineer. So they get more jobs. They get more demand for their services, right? Um, and then who maintains the kiosk? It's the mid-skilled. It's the ones who can go and fix it and everything else. Uh, so actually, something like the minimum wage, which is supposed to help with some of the inefficiencies in the marketplace, actually hurt the people that they're trying to help. It actually is an increasing income inequality um, to going to upper and middle income people and fewer jobs and, and not as high of wages for those at the bottom. And I think that's just one example. For example, in Fort Worth, Texas, there's actually a fully automated McDonald's now where you can just go through the drive-thru, you, 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 you tell the computer what you want. There are robots making the hamburgers and everything else. And then you get to the window and they spit it out. You know, they give it to you. There, there, there's no one working there. And I think we're going to see more of that the longer that we go in this direction. And so is this really a problem with capitalism and profitability? I don't think so. I think it's a, a push and maybe we'd get here over time, but I think it would, the adjustment would be much easier if we let the marketplace get us to that point versus the government shoving it down our throats. And a lot of that happened with, um, with COVID uh, and the shutdowns and people not wanting to work at some of these places. And so it became um, cheaper to get capital and kiosks and other things first before doing this. And, and so again, I would just go back and say, let the, mar let the markets work. Let's not worry so much about how we're 
shifting or transitioning from one AI to another. Because remember, at one point in time, you had people who were upset about the horse and buggy when the T-Mile Ford and other cars were coming online. But I don't know about you, but I'm very glad we're not riding horse and buggies anymore. Uh, I, I, I like taking my vehicle from one place to another. <laughs> mm -hmm. Absolutely. Particularly in the hot Texas summer or the cold Montana winters, right? Yes. Right. Amen. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I think it's interesting too with AI that um, the initial fear was that it was going to be low income jobs that would get hurt first, right? We're talking about kiosks, stuff like that, but yeah. and people like truck drivers, but that's not all what we're seeing. ChatGDP4 mm -hmm. has has harmed lawyers first yeah. and doctors and engineers and computer coders, like people with bachelor's degrees first. So it's an, it's an interesting problem that, you know, if we, it is quite possible that what we'll see is way more productivity at a smaller group of each people in those fields and more value for things you do with your hands and mm -hmm. low income folks. It could, AI could be, and just theoretically speaking here, could be the greatest equalizer of outcome that we've ever had. Right. As far as, you know, making it harder, better paid for lower income people as AI filters out and pushes out people out of engineering and coding and things like that. Your, your theory there is that it would push people into working with their hands, uh, you know, developing a skilled trade or yeah. a craft of some mm -hmm. kind yeah. versus knowledge work. Because, because you, have a, you have a lawyer in your pocket. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. I, mean, I mean, imagine if, if, if it was as good as a human lawyer. Right? Well, I mean, there was, and we're not there yet, obviously, but there was yeah. recently a lawyer, I think, who used ChatGPT to write a brief and it referenced a case that didn't exist. Yes. I don't know if it was ChatGPT yes. or, or one of the other ones. Lucinated, but, sort of. Yeah. So he, he got disbarred. Yeah. So, but, you know, maybe it's not, maybe that, it, in, it's not that it can completely automate, but at least makes you a thousand times more productive. For sure. Right. Yeah. So your average lawyer right now is that much more productive. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, I think that's that's all of our community questions, and uh, we've hit our major topics. And Amanda, this was really great. Thank you, Vance. Absolutely. Yeah. Where yeah, can you're uh, where can our listeners find you online? Yeah. Well, uh, first, you know, thank you for this opportunity. It's a great discussion, um, and we should do it again sometime. Uh, there's, there's probably a lot of other issues we didn't get to touch. <laughs> um, and and they can so find many, me. I'm sure. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Um, yeah, but the audience can find me at vanceskin.com. That's my website. I have a lot of links and stuff there. Um, I have my podcast show, Let People Prosper Show. That's on all the major platforms that are out there. On Mondays, I have an, an interview that I do with a guest, an expert in, in kind of an area. And we talk about a lot of free market economics and kind of nerd out on some stuff like that. And then on Fridays, I have This Week's Economy, where I talk about what's happened in the economy over the last week and the latest data and from a market perspective that you can trust compared to a lot of the, the, the mainstream media that will just give you the, the flashy things at the top, but, but not the reality of what's happening on the ground. And so um, those, are, those are a lot of things that I, that I try to do. And I also do a lot of research for think tanks and, and things of that nature. And so um, a lot of good information. And, and finally, I have a Substack, vanceskin.substack.com. That's my newsletter where you can get all this information right in your email. Uh, so those are, those are the places. Fantastic. How do you find time to sleep? You do so many things. It's, uh, it's quite impressive. Dr. Vance, again, we really appreciate you joining us on Human Reaction and uh, we'll, we'll see you next time. Sounds good. Thanks so much. Thanks for tuning in to Human Reaction. Help us fight internet censorship by liking, commenting, subscribing, following, and sharing the show with your friends. To find us around the internet, visit linktree.com slash human reaction pod. And remember... The way we prosper is by putting ourselves in, a, in the best situation that we can and that way we're not as reliant on government and everything else. And if for us, right, uh, if, if we get Social Security later, great. 
but I, I'm not going to depend on it. I'm not going to, I'm not going to bet on it. it. Yeah. I'm not going to count on it. Yeah. 